Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, and we're just about done with another week here. And what do you know, um, here we are two days left in October, and we're going to be now into November. Daylight Savings is just around the corner. A lot in store, but hopefully it's all for the right reasons for all of you listeners out there. Well, here we are once again talking about founding rivals Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved a nation. Now, I'm sure one, many of you all are out there are wondering, you know, hey, when are we going to get to this election? Uh, when are we going to get to the real nitty-gritty part of when Monroe and Madison square off against each other in an actual debate that uh, will lead people to go out and vote for that right candidate? Well, I will admit that we're not too too far away from getting to that point, but in order to understand how the election itself between these two um, close uh, political companions comes about, we must underst- we must keep learning about their pasts to understand where the present or where the future will take them when the time comes for the election between these two men to represent uh, what would become Virginia's uh, fifth congressional district. So uh, tonight's podcast, we're going to... Um, learn about how James Madison and James Monroe actually not only just find out about one another, but how they will actually meet to where they will establish not just a solid rapport in the present moment, but how this uh, rapport, or let alone friendship, that um, comes about will uh, last not just for one or two decades, but basically five decades. So, in the autumn of 1784, James Madison and James Monroe have already begun hearing about one another through many close friends, but still hadn't established the true friendship. And that's okay, though, because it's going to get there. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting to note that when we, um, when, when oftentimes when we say, Oh yes, I know who that person. I know who that person is, but I only know them by name. That means right away that okay, we already we know we know some things about say John Smith or Sally Jones, but we have not had the chance to have any kind of a formal introduction to them. So basically, the one hundred and one is saying, oh, I don't know him directly, but I know who uh, he or she is. Now, true or false? Was James Madison close to James Monroe's uncle, Joseph Jones? The answer is true. Madison had served with Monroe's uncle at the 5th Virginia Convention in 1776, including congressional stints at Philadelphia and Princeton, New Jersey. And in case any of y'all are wondering, um, yes, the Continental Congress was in in Philadelphia during the American Revolution, but in the post-Revolution era, the um, Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, has been relocating to to different um, places, which I find interesting. One, it could be for security reasons, but two, you know, I would have liked to have assumed that because the Continental Congress or the Congress of the Confederation was relocating, maybe it was their way of trying to um, appeal to uh, people about uh, what they thought should should um, best represent a, um, a proper functioning government, but <laughs> that's not the case. And as we've learned from from previous podcasts that, uh, that, that the federal government is lacking in so many things, given just how much authority that the states alone have over Congress. So, our uh, lead-off bonus question for tonight is the following. What's significant about November 7th, 1784? Congressman James Monroe signed his first letter to James Madison. Now, this is a huge step right here. Because Monroe, I, I mean, if it had been the other way around, if Madison had done it, um, he would have probably had the same uh, response or the same um concept running through his mind, but little did James Monroe know that um, 
when he uh, signed his first letter to James Madison that he would be establishing a relationship that would last five decades, as I mentioned earlier. Now, I should not get too far ahead into the game, but I will just tell you this right now. We're here we are in 1784. We look at five decades later, a relationship that goes, or let alone a friendship that lasts five decades. So after the 1780s, beginning in the 1790s, that's one full decade there. The first decade of the 19th century, second, third, and fourth. So basically the first four decades of the 19th century and the last decade of the 18th century make up those five decades of um, solid friendship. Uh, true or false, in 18th century times, was it common for letters to fall into the wrong hands? You know, after uh, rereading um, this particular part, when I was uh, getting prepared for uh, tonight's podcast, I was always under the assumption that in 18th century times, writing letters, it was one thing to write a letter, but I never would have thought, even in 18th century times, that a letter itself could get placed into the wrong hands. In other words, it was one thing for the courier to um, to transport the mail, but then all of a sudden, once you've given it to someone else, can you really be 100% sure that the next courier is going to um, safely transport the document itself to its final destination? Well, I hate to say this, but in um, 18th century times, it was common for letters to fall into the wrong hands. And ironically, sometimes that wasn't always for the worst of reasons. Sometimes when letters got into the wrong hands, it may have helped thwart um, something bad that could have happened to not just a prominent person, but to other individuals within a community to where not only their lives could have been at stake, but perhaps a char- uh, someone's character could have been had the potential to be ruined. Uh, so the bottom line is, is that, yes, in 18th century times, we may not have had the most... The technology w- would not have been anywhere like it is today, but it didn't mean that letters could still get into the wrong hands to where the unexpected or the unforeseeable could have happened, such as one's image being ruined or um, going around and gossiping about information that, for one, was not your place to know about. As a matter of fact, a famous uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, I learned about him. His name was Dr. Benjamin Rush. For those of you who listened um, to my podcasts involving uh, the book Signing Their Lives Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, the authors talked about uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush of Pennsylvania. He was given a title, and their, in their minds, uh, the title was The Signer Who Loved to Gossip. Now, Dr. Rush liked to tell others about the men that he uh, worked with in Philadelphia to um, who all came together in getting the Declaration of Independence signed. But oftentimes, Benjamin Rush would say a little bit too much. In other words, he didn't have a, um, maybe at times he didn't have a filter or a boundary on what was appropriate and not appropriate to discuss. He did have an early career stint in the military, and a long, to make a long story short, he wrote a letter, and he um, assumed that it would have gotten to the right person. Well, what do you know? The letter had to, had to do with um, criticism of a military official, and that letter got into the hands of General George Washington. And what do you know? George Washington recognized Benjamin Rush's handwriting. And once Rush and once uh, Rush himself learned about George Washington's getting the letter, sadly Rush was demoted from the military. But luckily, he found a better career with medicine. So the bottom line is, even in 18th century times, like like it is in today's time, don't always say everything that's on your mind. And that also applies to writing purposes, because just when you think you're writing a letter. It doesn't mean that uh, someone else can pick up on um, on what on what the overall intent of the letter itself is supposed to be. So, I'm sure some of you out there are wondering: Okay, 
if it was bad enough that letters fell into the wrong hands, what what could have been done to have uh, modified the problem so that it didn't happen to people on a recurring theme? Well, I can tell you this much. There was a practice back in 18th century times, and it still is used today. Of course, it's far more sophisticated now. But even in 18th century days, this practice was sophisticated enough for its time, known as cryptography. Secure communication practices, which would keep confidential information out of the wrong people's hands. James Monroe, in his first letter to Madison had performed what was known as a cipher, a cipher or an algorithm, a sequence that, could, that would contain all words, and each one would correspond to a number. So in James Monroe's letter to James Madison, it contained 99 words. As I said a second ago, each one would co- correspond to a number. So... Christa Rose's, in Christa Rose's book, Founding Rivals, he mentioned in a paragraph about some of the details regarding this letter that James Monroe had written to uh, Mr. Madison. It goes like this, and this is in quotations, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, to war, peace, defense, prepare, states. And now I know some of you are thinking, How can this make any sense? Well, the code itself allowed James Monroe and James Madison to communicate freely about sensitive matters. So instead of James Monroe writing like five paragraphs and saying, oh, John Adams had done this and done that um, while he was in uh, Paris, because, you know, he was one of the four men of the American delegation behind the Treaty of Paris in 1783, when Monroe just said his name along with Jefferson's and the terms that I mentioned, it gave James Madison a better understanding of what Monroe was relaying to him without having to go into the full nine yards. So, yes, anybody could look at the letter and say, okay, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, war, peace, defense, preparing states. What is that all supposed to mean? If it left the other party confused, that's a good thing. Because this way, the other party could not uh, 100% decipher or decipher 100% James Monroe's uh, what do you call it purpose for um, relaying whatever was on his mind to Madison. So, hats off in 18th century times for uh, people to be able to communicate information, even knowing that it was sensitive, but by doing so without having to. um, go the full nine yards into five or six paragraphs. Not that you couldn't do it, but hey, if you want to protect your information, you've got to um, modify it at all costs. All right, now uh, the next part here, or next bonus question rather, I should say, considering just how many failings the federal government experienced, what was its most successful accomplishment? What do you know? creating a postal service. Madison and Monroe relied on the use of postal service for expressing concerns about governmental failures. So, hey, if the postal service is working well, what can Madison and Monroe do in return that's great? Continue engaging in cryptography uh, practices. And it is uh, good to point out that James Madison himself would write letters to James Monroe you know, he would return the favor, and the letters that he would write back to Monroe ranged from a statewide tax in Virginia to fund teaching of Christianity, known as the General Assessment, to a bill establishing the Episcopal Church as the head church of Virginia. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about these um, matters that Madison himself had written to Monroe by letter um, closer to the end of uh, tonight's uh, podcast. Now, here's a question to think about. Uh, It should be an obvious answer, but I'm going to ask it. Did the states have any respect for Congress? The answer is very seldom, or let alone very little respect. 
Congress received only 4 out of 13 states' approval on trade regulation. So that should tell you right there that the other 9 states really just don't give a rat's about what the federal government wants to do. But there again, if you give the states too much leverage and authority, do you really think they're going to respect what's above them? No. And if they do respect anything, then that's a miracle unto itself. So this should be another red flag right here of, hey, this government that we're currently operating on, it's operating by a thread. Because, yes, everybody could be in unison about one thing, but that doesn't mean that they'll, all, that they'll come into line with everything else that they should be in total unison about. What does unison mean? Agreement. Britain even imposed trade measures on America with heavy taxes along with outright prohibitions on imports from America. So if the other nine states don't approve uh, Congress's, um, what do you call it, uh, motion for trade regulation, then guess what? The other nine states can do whatever they want in terms of tolerating um, British policies that will do more harm than good to us. Now here's a... A good, another good bonus question. I think all bonus questions are good, but I'm going to throw this one at you all. What took place in Massachusetts in 1785? Well, we already know 10 years earlier in Massachusetts, the, the shots were heard round the world on April 17th of 1775 at Lexington and Concord. But it is fair to say that a second revolution has begun in Massachusetts. Massachusetts would become the first state legislature to call for a convention where the states would come together per their wishes in revising the Articles of Confederation, which Massachusetts clearly saw as deficient. I, am, I totally agree with this uh, action, with this course of action that Massachusetts took. But I hate to say this, the proposal on their part sadly went nowhere, but if anything good came out of it, is that a foundation was already planted. In other words, okay, if we can't get the other 12 um, states to join along with our concern, we're going to keep pressing on. We've already laid one, one uh, what do you call it, block for, um, for a cornerstone of what could be potential uh, success down the road and getting something better compared to what's already um, in play. But we're going to keep trying. And who knows, it could take an, a, a, a personal event or two for the rest of the states to come to the realization that, hey, in order for our country to succeed, then we've got to scrap what's already in existence. And I should say this, that in 1785, January of 1785, a new session of Congress convened in New York. Now, another bonus question here. Was James Monroe like an heir to James Madison? Well, when I think of heir, that's spelled H-E-I-R or heiress. Heir or heiress, oftentimes I think of a family member inheriting a family fortune. Well, in this case, that's, that's not what um, happens. James Monroe is definitely like an heir to James Madison because Monroe himself goes about finishing the objectives that James Madison had started during his three-year term um, or three-year um, stint in serving uh, under, um, what do you call it, in serving under the Congress uh, Confederation in Philadelphia. <laughs> try to get those words out right. But James Monroe, yes, as I mentioned from the previous night's podcast, Monroe had the distinction of being able to take part in uh, ratifying uh, the Treaty of Paris that formally ended the American Revolution, uh, ended the American Revolutionary War. James Madison had laid a lot of key um, building blocks behind that treaty, but did not get a chance to finish it because his term expired. But Nonetheless, James Monroe, taking his place, becomes the heir and finishes what Madison started. And both men are 
100% unified all the way through when it comes to matters impacting the national cause, meaning the matters that impact the um, not only just the federal government, but matters that impact the country as a greater whole. In the House of Delegates, or let alone, I should say, in the Virginia House of Delegates, because remember, folks, James Madison is back in Virginia. He's representing Orange County. James Madison passes an instruction to the Virginia delegation in Congress to create an ambassadorship post to Spain for securing the Mississippi River. And, Mon and James Monroe, in return, chaired the committee. So, you know, we've been having some issues in, with the Spanish. For one, they control the Mississippi River, but apparently there's been a lot of hostilities engaged on our end. And because we've engaged in some unnecessary hostilities, I could see why it would be very hesitant for um, the Spanish to want to even consider giving us the Mississippi River. But uh, James Madison is smart enough to um, establish an ambassadorship post, and by doing so, this could help improve relations between us and Spain when it comes to um, working out agreements on how the transfer of um, control over one country to another in, in terms of the, of the ability to control the flow of goods coming up and down the Mississippi River, because that's what ultimately what we're wanting to acquire. Because in order to get the Mississippi River, we, you know, we have to obviously negotiate with uh, foreign countries, most notably Spain and France, and let alone Britain, because they all seem to have an interest. But in order to do that, uh, we have to be unified. And obviously right now we're not 100% unified. Another question to think about is this, or to take into consideration. Did James Madison and James Monroe have, a, have passionate thoughts about Western frontier territory? And when I think of Western frontier territory, I think of Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, present-day West Virginia, which is still considered to be Virginia. I also think about what was the uh, Northwest, what would become the Northwest Territory that would be defined three years later in 1787, but I also think of that Western Territory that we know of as Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But the bottom line is, is that James Monroe and James Madison themselves are very passionate about Western Frontier Territory. They truly believe that through land sales and dealings that all of the land acquisition in the Western Territories could help pay off national debt. And in return, it would uh, increase the size of the United States substantially. This could be seen as an early precursor to what Thomas Jefferson would do during the time of his presidency in the early years. I know I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of the game, but if any of you all are thinking to yourselves, territory? Louisiana Territory, Louisiana Purchase. Of course, that would come at the start of the 19th century. But what did it do? It doubled the size of our country. And we acquired all that territory from France. And what I'm always amazed at whenever I go to Monticello and learn about the Louisiana Purchase is that we never had to go to war just to get that territory. Of course, we still have a ways to go, at least a good 20 years at best. But... James Madison and James Monroe are definitely on the right page when it comes to um, expressing concerns about the frontier territory and knowing that, you know, it's one thing to acquire this territory, but to have it, because think about it, Indians west of us, like in what is present-day Tennessee, Kentucky, and, and going further westward, are in control of those territories. So we're also having to think about our national security along the frontiers. James Monroe, while he was in Congress, helped work he helped work on establishing a plan for a national capital. The Virginia legislature would enter into an agreement with Maryland regarding issues of clearing and expanding the Potomac River along with jurisdiction and, navig 
and navigation rights per each state. So the, Maryland and Virginia could be in the very, very beginning stages of trying to create a capital that would uh, be in the middle of their states. What do we know, folks? This is the early precursor to our nation's capital, as we know today, Washington, D.C. And on the Virginia side, who is going to be the representative to uh, deal with these um, with the agreements regarding the clearing and expanding of the Potomac to the jurisdiction and navigation rights. George Washington. And I say, and I think this is, I wouldn't say I think, I know it's a good fit. George Washington, for one, lives in Mount Vernon, and it's on the Potomac River. He's not too terribly far from Maryland, so he knows all the ins and outs. So it's, it's a perfect choice. Bonus question here is, uh, what Protestant sect in Virginia, and, and here's where we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of tonight's podcast, but this does have a big impact on James Madison and James Monroe, but at first it really seems to hit James Madison the hardest. But what Protestant sect in Virginia has ma makes up the largest dissenting group, or let alone the largest group of religious dissenters, well, I'll give you a few choices. Uh, choice A, would it be Baptists? Choice B, Methodists. Choice C, um, Quakers. The answer is Baptists. Baptists, for a, for a good period of time in Virginia, folks, were the largest group of religious dissenters. Well, my wife grew up being a Baptist, and she still is a Baptist, and how ironic that I grew up being an Episcopalian, and when I first met my wife, I um, started attending Baptist services, and uh, what do you know, uh, months after we got engaged, I, um, I took a, what was called a Joy of Belonging um, class program through my church, and I became um, a uh, later, late that summer I, of uh, 2004, I, I officially became a Baptist. I was uh, baptized in the James River here in Virginia. So, um, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian or Methodist. But what, what, we, must have, what we must remember in colonial Virginia days is that um, if you wanted to worship, it was one thing. But guess where your taxes went? They went to support the Anglican Church, or let alone the Church of the Church of England. So, um, is it fair to say that um, those um, religious officials of the Church of England, aka the Anglican Church and its um, and its uh, parishioners, are they um, fond of Baptists? No. Matter of fact. Baptists were viewed by men above as unworthy religious worshipers. In other words, by being unworthy in the eyes of the Anglican Church, the Baptists did not um, adhere to uh, traditional uh, principles that, uh, that would guide people throughout their daily lives. You know, I'm very thankful we live in a country where we have freedom of religion, but as I've said before in various other podcasts, and I'm going to say it right now, freedom of religion did exist, but it was only confined to those who adhered to the Anglican Church. If you were a member of the Anglican Church, that's great. You can worship freely in terms of um, being entitled to have all the um, luxuries and, um, what do you call it, connections to society, even if you're not in the uh, what you call landed uh, gentry or plantation um, aristocracy, if you are a member of the Anglican Church, you still receive um, some kind of uh, proper uh, respect and treatment within your community. But if you don't belong to the Church of England, then you are um, you are almost frowned upon, and your access to a lot of things in terms of connections don't even stand a chance. But um, I will tell you this, um, 
Baptists were frequently placed in jail because of their religious beliefs and actions. Baptists preached in a far different manner compared to their Anglican counterparts when it came to preaching the gospel, including Bible interpretation. So in other words, Baptists did not have their own church um, establishment in terms of a church where they could go to. Matter of fact, I'll tell you that part here in a moment. Baptists, I know, vehemently opposed any form of government-sponsored laws or legislation that linked church and state together as one. Baptists did not believe... Baptists may have been the first in Virginia to have said, hey, we don't want government interfering in a church's daily um, practices, and we certainly don't want the church telling the government what it can and cannot do. We want to be able to worship freely, but we want to do so knowing that our lives aren't going to be put at stake all the time. In other words, a dissenter is entitled to his or her own view, but they can certainly go about expressing their view in a nonviolent manner. And I think for those who were in the Anglican Church, too much uh, religious uh, diversity would have been a threat. It was a threat because... Those who did not adhere to um, those who did not adhere to the Church of England were pretty much seen as outcasts. In other words, they what they were preaching just lacked total um, was nonconformant. It was irrelevant in the eyes of the Anglicans. And you know, many people in Europe came over to the New World. To, uh, to avoid religious persecutions. Well, what do you know? Here we are in colonial America, and we are seeing religious persecution. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. We all would like to think that the religious persecutions happened just in Europe, but no. They were happening in colonial America. As a matter of fact, um, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to, um, if you were a Catholic and you were looking for a safe haven, you went to Maryland. And how ironic that only 10% of the population in Maryland was of Catholic uh, faith, but still that was your best stronghold to go to. Uh, even in the book um, Jefferson's Creed, which I read last year on uh, re- freedom of religion, at one time in the early years of Jamestown's, um, J- of, uh, Jamestown's um, settlement, or the establishment of the settlement, those who did not adhere to the Anglican Church were expelled, and they were either sent, if, if they wanted to worship in the Catholic faith, they were sent to Maryland. If they were wanting to worship in the Methodist or Baptist faith, they were sent to North Carolina. But basically, uh, Virginia, for the longest time, did not uh, tolerate. Virginia was not a haven for religious diversity. What I do know is that the first known imprisonment of Baptist ministers did take place around 1768 in Spotsylvania County, which isn't far from Orange County, where James Madison uh, was a, a delegate from. But the the irony to it is that this situation that occurred involved three Baptist ministers who were arrested and charged with disturbing the peace. The prosecution had claimed that the three ministers had preached gospel to strangers. The magistrate of the magistrate who uh, presided over the case had offered a very uh, unique compromise for its time. He told these three ministers to do the following, to stop preaching altogether, and by in doing so, to stop preaching for a whole year and a day. And in doing so, all charges would be dropped. But did those three ministers listen? No. They refused and the persecution became worse. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, yeah, I would have stopped. But here's the problem. If those three ministers hadn't stopped, or if they had stopped altogether, do you think it would have um, wanted, do you think they would have uh, been sending the right message to other um, ministers who wanted to preach and uh, practice their faith differently? No, they wouldn't have been sending a good message. So in other words, these three ministers were willing to take a stand and almost die for something that they knew 
in their hearts was right, knowing that the rest of the that the rest of um, Virginia was condemning them for. This is where um, people can, where everyday ordinary people can become martyrs. And I think it's fair to say that the Baptists, when it came to a religion in Virginia, being the largest group of dissenters, were in fact their own martyrs. Baptists were arrested for worshiping in private residences. And think about it, uh, people just people could come into their homes and um, knock down a door and uh, arrest them without any prob- proper probable cause, without any... Um, what do you call it, without any um, evidence to uh, come in and say, hey, I've got uh, proof that you're doing X, Y, and Z wrong. So this is where when you come into people's homes and arrest them, this could be what we might think of in today's world as a violation of, um, of, uh, of keeping someone from being free from unreasonable search and seizure. You know, it's one thing to speculate if somebody's doing something wrong, but if you don't have probable cause and you don't have any solid evidence or proof to go by, is it still valid to um, have a search warrant? No. The only time a search warrant's good is when you actually have valid probable cause and, and strong evidence. And, of course, uh, the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure is uh, one of our um, Bill of Rights, our First Ten Amendments. So let's keep that in mind, folks. I mean, you, you know, it's I can't imagine being a Baptist in 18th century time in Virginia. I would have been jailed. Not only would I have been in jail, but my wife would have been in jail. Several other people whom we know that attend our church would have been jailed as well. So... Just another reminder that while freedom of religion was free to certain people, it wasn't free to all Virginians. And to make matters worse or even more complicated is that uh, for Baptists who were in uh, jail, they would worship, they still worshiped, and they preached, which included singing hymns to praying out loud for those who had inflicted harm upon them. They went as far as asking God to forgive those souls who had inflicted harm upon them. So here the Baptists were, here these Baptists are. They're not trying to start conflict on purpose. They're just trying to um, they're just trying to make their name known and know and make people know that hey, religious diversity can be tolerated as long as people can peacefully coexist with one another, but in the eyes of the Anglican church, having religious diversity just can't be done because they see religious diversity as something that's corrupt. Is it fair to say that the, that Baptists could view Anglicans as being narrow-minded? Absolutely. And is it fair to say that um, the Anglicans are viewing Baptists as those who are... Um, Corrupting, um, corrupting those who are already committed to God, but in an Anglican sense, absolutely. So it is fair to say that even in the eyes of the Baptists, that the Anglicans are disturbing the peace by coming into their homes without any probable cause and assaulting Baptist preachers, disrupting their service to arresting them. So I see this as a double-edged sword. And true or false, did James Madison have sympathy towards religious dissenters in Virginia? Yes. And we must remember too, folks, James Madison did not attend college in Virginia. He, went, he attended college in New Jersey at what was then the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton. He went up north because uh, William and Mary's uh, curriculum was not the strongest at the time. And I think going to New Jersey or to the College of New Jersey paid significant dividends for Madison because it was in New Jersey that he saw a broad spectrum of religious diversity at his, at co- in college. This allowed him to uh, broaden his horizons and know that, hey, where I'm at in college, 
people are accepted on all grounds. Sure, they could still accept someone even if they were Anglican, but the bottom line is is that in New Jersey, there is no there is no one official religion that makes that religion the head official religion of the state. And I think it's also beneficial to know that James Madison um, was mentored under a religious uh, professor who was also president of the College of New Jersey, John Witherspoon, who would become the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. But when James Madison came back from uh, college to Virginia, he was very, very um, dismayed over how dissenters were treated. And because of what he had seen, it made him realize all the more that, hey, Virginia's got to do a better job in being um, accept, in being accepting to those who are of the non-Anglican faith. If we're going to be a successful state, we've got to be able to do a better job of tolerating diversity. I think James Madison would be very happy to know, even though, yes, today's world is very unstable and unpredictable and fast, far fast-paced compared to the world that he lived in, and the same for James Monroe, but Madison and Monroe and Jefferson himself, along with others, would be very happy to know that freedom of religion has flourished in so many good ways. But what I do think is important to point out is that in October of 1776, the Virginia legislature totally stopped funding the Church of England. And I know many of you are thinking, well, if we stopped funding the Church of England, would that mean altogether that we don't want to have anything to do with the Church of England altogether or let alone adhere to the Anglican faith? Well, you're going to find out here shortly what the real meaning of it was, but I can tell you one of the reasons why. It was done to cut direct ties with England over how, in large part over how England herself had treated not just the colonies as a whole, but how she had treated Virginia. And leader, I will point this out here too. Which leader supported the use of, in, this is in 1784, so we're going now back to the present, present moment, but are there any leaders that come to your all's mind who would have supported the use of tax dollars in implementing state-funded religious teachings as a means for improving morality in terms of religious morality. Well, it turns out that Patrick Henry was all for it. He saw a true decline in um, religious morality, and he wanted to do something about it. So he um, led a full-scale support in using tax dollars to uh, go about funding for state-funded religious teachings. Now, let me ask you this. Was James Madison, where did James Madison stand on this? I think the answer is, uh, is a, the answer is obvious to all of you out there, but I'm going to ask, ask the question. What concerned Madison most about taxes and church? His fears... <laughs> revolved around how religious matters would become subjects in everyday life. In other words, one of his fears, for example, had to do with how religious matters would become uh, an issue when it came to um, going to court. Madison was very fearful that the courts in Virginia, would have to become the final arbiter in resolving all things religious. But how ironic in today's world, courts themselves do hear cases involving religious affairs. And from time to time, there are court cases involving um, freedom of religion or uh, you know, religious practices in general that do make their way to the United States Supreme Court. So, for if James Madison were alive today, I think he would probably be uh, taken by surprise that uh, that from time to time, courts will um, 
have to take up religious affairs, not only on the local level, but as high up as uh, the national level being the United States Supreme Court. But of course, in, eight, in 1784, what James Madison is concerned about, number one, is obviously the current state of affairs for the Confederation Congress. But what he is very worried about is, is that um, if church and state aren't separated, then they will interfere with one another on a daily basis, but that people themselves will become the true victims in, um, in knowing that they can't catch a break from either institution, knowing that one of them is always going to have to turn to the other to make a decision on something. So, and if James Madison is worried about what kind of ju jurisdiction the courts alone are going to have over dealing with religious matters, he's also, this also um, affects how Bible, um, how Bibles are being used. In other words, what edition, what Bible edition is going to be used? Is, is it going to be one that was used? that's been around for years or is it going to be something that's good that has to be done now to um to go or let alone abide by the uh, current um what do you call it current uh day of time that we're in and then all of a sudden then you've got to think about uh, fundamental teachings involving salvation and forgiveness of sin so the bottom line is who's going to oversee all this stuff Who's going to have the authority to, to say what's appropriate and inappropriate as to what can and cannot be taught religiously? And for James Madison, he is truly the chief opponent behind establishing an Episcopal church in Virginia. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with the Episcopal church. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with any church, but for James Madison, tax dollars should not be used to fund religious teachings. In other words, churches as individual institutions should fund their own money based off of the tithes or offerings that the congregation gives to the minister as a means to go about funding not just a, a personal project for the church, but in terms of funding the money given to the, to the church to the individual church on how it can be best used for uh, their own ministerial teachings. So in other words, congregations give money to the minister, then the minister and the clergymen below should have the proper say over how, with, with addressing the needs to the congregation, but by doing so, that keeps government out, out of the affairs. This is a good example of a check and balance system between uh, church and state right here, folks. Now, Madison, I mentioned earlier about that pamp or um, what was known as um, uh, what was known as the memorial and remonstrance against religious assessment. Well, he wrote a pamphlet in 1785 based off of um, the, the memorial and remonstrance against uh, religious assessment. It became the most famous document in the history of, America, of American religious freedom. Now, in 1785, James Madison played a big part in this, but the elections that occurred in the Virginia legislature were a direct result of new members winning seats whom ran against the establishment of an official religion. So, you talk about a, a revolutionary breakthrough right here. This basically helps defeat the, propo the proposal established by the um, established by uh, those who wanted the tax dollars to go towards funding religious teachings. So this so Patrick Henry basically is defeated. While Madison was fighting his own battle with religious freedom in Virginia, did James Monroe encounter anything similar in Congress? Yes, he did. Mon James Monroe helped defeat a measure that would have allowed state-sanctioned religious denominations in the Western territories 
Each township in these territories would have set aside a parcel of land and the proceeds would have gone towards financing religious events. So I think it's fair to say that James Monroe viewed this matter as a direct violation of church and state and Madison himself the same thing. The bottom line is it's one thing to have to want to expand westward but if you're going to do that don't you think it's don't you think um allowing a state sanctioned religious denominations is a step backward in um making progress I would say it is because if it's one thing to want to uh, populate territories westward, but if you're going to uh, establish a, a state-sanctioned religion, that's only going to create further conflict. And then, you know, would you say that the incentive itself to want to go would remain high? Probably not. The bottom line is, folks, if you want to have, if you want to have a, a good means of um, of a church and state, you need to make sure that they have boundaries because if they don't have boundaries, then they will uh, constantly uh, con conflict with one another to where they both could uh, impact or not so much could, they have the potential to impact daily people's lives to the point where people as a community can't function independently. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and just constantly be reminded, folks, of the fact that, hey, not everybody gets to live in a country where religious freedom is, is as acceptable as it is here. We have Thomas Jefferson to thank, and even James Madison and James Monroe themselves, for um, establishing religious freedom, but for Thomas Jefferson's sake... He went above and beyond to oversee to it that religious freedom became imperative in Virginia. As a matter of fact, one of the three things that are on his tombstone that he wanted to be remembered for was for being the found for being the father, the founding father of um, religious freedoms in Virginia. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Uh, and as I've said before from previous podcasts, uh, whatever we do, don't take freedom for granted because there are plenty of people in other countries in the world who would give anything in the world to have the freedoms that we have. So the bottom line is this, folks. Freedom isn't free. No matter how safe we are, we can't take it for granted. And that's what uh, the lesson that I'm trying to teach you all here is that the struggles that our forefathers faced, they sacrificed a lot for our freedoms. And they endured a lot of blood and sweat. So remember the struggles they faced because they sacrificed a lot to ensure future generations would enjoy the freedoms that we have. And again, freedom isn't free, but do everything there is possible to ensure that freedom lasts not only today, tomorrow, but forever. Take care, good night, and God bless.